0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: I know I say this every week that I have a very special guest, but this week I really have an extra very special guest. His name is Jack Bogle, and he is the founder of the Vanguard Group and the inventor of the index fund. Did I oversell that this is a special guest or not? Um, let me tell you a little bit about how this date came about and what made this so interesting and weird and, and unusual. First, I've been chasing Jack Bogle for literally years and he doesn't travel much. He, he's a homebody. He lives near the Vanguard headquarters. He's not much for coming into Manhattan and, and recording something like this, uh, But we did the interview with chairman of Vanguard, Jack Brennan, about a year and a till almost two years ago. And that went really well. And then last year, we did just about a year ago, we did the interview with Bill McNabb. He's the current CEO uh, of Vanguard Group. And I started poking and prodding and asking, hey, when can I sit down with Jack? When can I sit down with Jack? And finally, uh, I just said, we're willing to come to Pennsylvania and meet with you guys and they said, "Oh, if that's the case, come on down." So, you'll hear when we sit and talk with Jack, this was not the usual interview partly because he's just a force of nature and I, I you know, I try and balance between guiding the conversation to the specific questions we have and and keeping us on track to cover a variety of topics and subjects. And you could pretty much tell when I give up about three or four questions in and just say, Jack Bogle is a force of nature. I'm just going to have a conversation with him and, and let it go. A little background on, on the day. This was a couple of Thursdays ago. And we basically left the New York area ungodly early. I want to say about 4.30, quarter to 5. Drove down to Pennsylvania, Actually, we left so early we beat all the traffic. Not only around New York, we got there before the pen, the traffic from Philadelphia. Um, so I had my first Cracker Barrel experience, having having a breakfast at a Cracker Barrel, which apparently is very common outside of of downstate New York. It was quite delicious. We get to the Vanguard campus uh, about an hour early. Spend some time in their galley. Get at Vanguard. It's it's the staff or crew. The the cafeteria is a galley. It's got all these these nautical themes, and we're finally ushered into uh, a, a small conference room off of Jack's office. And he's—you'll hear during the interview—he's eighty-six years old. He is sharp as a tack, smart as a whip. His voice is still very strong, very powerful. And any pretense I had of following a script and trying to ask specific questions pretty much went out the window uh so you'll hear me wrestling in the beginning some of the questions you'll hear me trying to keep him on our original script and and I you know 10 minutes into this conversation it's pretty clear hey this is a bucking Bronco just just try not to get kicked in the head keep feeding him questions based on wherever he goes just follow him and take it to where it goes and All told, I thought this was really a a fascinating conversation. He sat with us for 90 minutes. He was supposed to go to lunch uh, with someone else. I'm pointing to my watch. He's waving me off like I'm telling him not to steal home. And he's coming in. He doesn't care. And so it ran a little long. By the time we back out, some of the other stuff, you'll hear this is a substantive, lengthy conversation. If you are at all a Vanguard fan, a Boglehead, an Index fan, You are going to have a field day with this. I had to set this up because, really, it was such an exciting experience for me to spend 90 minutes with the man, the legend. Here it is, my conversation with the one, the only, Jack
0: Bogle. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: I know I say this every week that I have a special guest, but this week I have a super special guest – the one, the only, Jack Bogle, founder and chairman emeritus of the Vanguard Group, essentially the creator of the world's first index mutual fund for individuals in 1975. I could read your CV, which will essentially take up the entire show. There's so much stuff to, to talk about with you. You are a legend in the industry and maybe the person who has had the single biggest impact on investing of anyone. But let's just start from that beginning undergraduate thesis. You're in college in Princeton in 1950, 1951, and you're thinking about why do actively managed funds, why do so many of them underperform the market? How did that come about for a college (laughs) student?
2: Well, it came about by great accident. And that is, I was majoring in economics. Mm -hmm. I was looking for a subject for my senior thesis, which is a requirement still at Princeton. This extensive extensive document. Mine turned out to be maybe 135, 40 pages. And uh, I didn't know what to write about, but I wanted to write about something that no one had ever written about before. And there, in December 1949, I was reading Fortune Magazine, which I did as part of my economics background, Mm -hmm. just uh, uh, voluntarily, and uh, there was an article called big money in Boston and it was about the mutual fund industry and described this tiny industry uh, maybe two and a half billion dollars for the industry Mm -hmm. as tiny but contentious and I thought well you know I'm kind of tiny and I'm kind (laughs) of (laughs) contentious so I'll write about it and I wrote the thesis enabled me to graduate with high honors from Princeton very pretty good job Uh, not a great thesis but not bad for somebody a year out of his teens.
1: Let and, me uh, let me uh, push back at you and say that was a incredibly insightful thesis. The insight that you derived at a very young age is the cost of all this active management. They were unable to overcome that bogey. Even to today, what should really be so obvious to everybody, lots of folks still haven't seemed to figure that out. So what makes me stop and pause and, and ask you this question is, how did you ever come to that conclusion at such a young age without the universe of information we have available to us today?
2: Well, to begin with, the thesis title was The Economic Role of the Investment Company. Mm-hmm. And the overall of the overriding focus of that thesis was mutual funds are there to serve investors, mm-hmm. put the investors first. And I talked about reducing sales loads, reducing management fees, Uh, focusing on investing and not marketing, uh, things of that nature. And uh, that's what the industry in my my formula then would have to do to reach its great potential. And uh, I did not actually, to be very clear on this, I did not assemble Mm -hmm. any data. But I looked at about 15 leading mutual funds Mm -hmm. and looked at their records. And without adding and dividing and getting averages, it was very clear that very few of them, if any at that time, could, could outperform the S&P 500 index. So it was basically anecdotal, mm-hmm. uh, although this industry in those days was very much a um, commodity in a way, kind of commodity. The major f- funds of those days uh, were just basic, basically buying uh, long lists of blue-chip stocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could call them Dow Jones Industrial Average Funds, or later, because the S&P wasn't very... Well known then, you could call them standard and poorest kind of funds. Mm-hmm. They were down the middle. They had fluctuations, very similar, volatility, very similar to the index.
1: Itself. So So even back in the late forties, early fifties, mutual funds were closet indexers.
2: Sure. Absolutely. Huh.
1: That's quite that's quite fascinating. So let's fast forward a little bit. So now you're working as chairman of Wellington Management Company. And long story short, you said the most unwise decision of your career. You do a merger, doesn't work out, and they end up um, uh, breaking you down from from uh, lieutenant to private, so to speak,
2: and not less than private, less than
1: private. <laughs> and you wanted to run a fund, and they said, well, you know, because of this M and A, uh, we don't want you running an active fund. If you want to put together, how did how did the index come out of that that job change?
2: Okay, well, let me say my first job, and uh, I was 35 years old, and Mr. Morgan, the founder of, Walter L. Morgan, the founder of Wellington, called me into his office. Wellington was in trouble. Wellington Fund was in trouble. Its performance was slipping, and Wellington Management Company was in trouble because we were basically a one product, if you will, company, mm-hmm. a conservative balanced fund. We were, for the want of a better metaphor, the bagel of the mutual fund industry. Mm-hmm. The hmm the hard, not sweet, um, nutritious, uh, safe choice uh, in uh, the biggest balance fund in the industry. Mm-hmm. And people stopped buying bagels and started buying, if you will, donuts. We came into the go-go era. So- and all these fancy growth funds, high-powered, uh, buying stocks that had no investment no intrinsic investment merit at all.
1: This is the mid to late 60s, the nifty 50, and that sort of this set This was of the go-go era. Yep.
2: And the go-go's came and the go-go's went. But if you're in the bagel business and nobody is buying bagels, and the, the balance fund share of industry sales actually dropped to 1%. Wow. And uh, so I had to do something, and Mr. Morgan told me to do it. And I talked to a couple of firms about merging, and then I came across this firm in Boston And it had a fund called iVest Fund, one of the go-go funds of the day. Mm -hmm. They had some apparently bright young managers that I had kind of common cause with. And they had a pension business. So we got the new managers that would save Wellington Fund. We got the go-go fund that we needed to stay in business. Mm -hmm. And we got into a new business that we thought we could be very successful in. It was, from words of one syllable, two syllables, Brilliant.
1: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest today is Jack Bogle. He is the founder of Vanguard Group and essentially the inventor of the index fund. Jack, we were speaking earlier about how a a crisis at Wellington, which was the predecessor you worked at to the Vanguard Group, actually led to the creation of the Vanguard Group. Tell us how that came about.
2: Okay, well, let's start with the fact that in doing this merger, uh, which I was eager to do, uh, I gave up too many votes in the company. Mm -hmm. And so when everything fell apart, the market went down, uh, and so on. Right as the market was going down in 1974, it would be a 50% decline. The Happy Partners um, fragmented. And there were four of them, and there was one of me. right? And they had packed the board of directors, I was, I was never very political, and they fired me. The guys that had caused this catastrophe fired the one that was trying to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was out of a job. So what could I do? I could go try and find work for another firm. I had a young family living here. I didn't want to move. Uh, I was very angry about what happened, of course. Uh, but, you know, what is, is. And so I decided my best chance was to talk to the directors of the Wellington Fund, this fund so badly hurt the, uh, the the diamond in our crown, and say, look, the the management company has fired me, but you, your slightly different group, uh, can keep me, and we'll tell the management company what to do. We will be in charge of the administration of the fund and anything necessary to make it work, and we'll be in charge of appraising the advisor and taking whatever steps we want. We'll be independent of the advisor. And uh, I wanted to take over distribution, too, but the directors wouldn't go along with that. So we became a a little administrative company. And uh, I wanted a glamorous name, so I found the name Vanguard. Uh, When I first learned about it, we go from Wellington, the the land battles of the Napoleonic Wars, the Duke of Wellington, to the naval battles of the Napoleonic War. And there's Lord Nelson. Mm -hmm. At the Battle of the Nile, one of the most complete, the most complete naval victory in history to this day. Uh, And uh, he writes of this dispatch that I see from the deck of HMS Vanguard, his flagship.
1: And that sounds like a great name for a a company.
2: Perfect. Perfect. From
1: Wellington Fund, how did you actually form the Vanguard Group?
2: Well, the idea was that the funds would create a new company that they owned— they would capitalize. Capitalization was very small. You know, I'm going to guess maybe $250,000. This mm-hmm. was a very small company at that point. Uh, actually, the total assets of the funds were down at around $1.5 mm-hmm. So uh, we capitalized the fund, and and Wellington Management Company had to take it because the directors of the funds were in charge of the contracts with Wellington. And, uh, so you really backdoored your way back into the company after they had fired you as chairman? Well, yes, I think that's a fair statement. But technically, from a technical standpoint, I'd been the chairman of the Wellington Fund all along. Gotcha. So I have the same old continuity that I had going back to nineteen. Just post
1: merger, they th- this was a backdoor. So how do you go from
2: that to the Vanguard Group? Well, we put a name in the company mm-hmm. because we had, I think, in those days, maybe a dozen funds, and we didn't want a dozen separate companies to manage. Right. It. So we had to have a core or central company, and uh, that would pool. Uh, resources of all the funds and provide all the services and we had allocation methods between the funds and it was all uh, good until we decided to take over distribution Mm -hmm. which was our uh, let me I'm a little bit ahead of myself let me me go back and say to the the first thing we were not allowed to go into the business of investment management Mm -hmm. that was theirs we were not allowed to go into the business that was theirs being willing that was theirs. Being so Wellington the active management. side, you couldn't do, uh, and we couldn't we couldn't go into ma- management. We didn't distinguish between active and passive. Oh, really? Uh, in those days, not in those days, there weren't any index funds, right? So, so if you
1: couldn't go into management, how were you able to set up the Vanguard 500?
2: Would uh, be patient. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so um, we were not allowed to go into distribution because that was Wellington's function too. So we had this little administrative company looking over, however. The, the legal responsibility and the board responsibility to look over the advisor and distributor. So we were in charge. and uh, so my first uh, I knew a company that was an administrative company was not going to be anything for me. I mean, I like the administration. I know how well it has to be done, shareholder record keeping and all that. but that's just not the kind of challenge I was looking for. And any company that's going to succeed is going to have to control the kind of funds he wants to they want to run, mm-hmm. the kind of distribution they want to have who will buy the funds, who will sell them, things of that nature. So we have a company that's just in this little administrative box, and I'm thinking, let's do something. So at the very first board meeting of the new company, after we'd gotten organized, uh, I say, we got to start an index fund. And the directors say, you're not allowed to get new investment management. And I say, this fund isn't managed. And believe it or not, they bought it.
1: So, in other words, you describe the index fund as just, hey, it's the 500 largest companies right. in five- America. There's no manager. Nobody's in charge. It's just uh, – it's an unmanaged broad index. And they said, oh, go do that.
2: They said, well, I won't say it was that easy, but that was the final decision.
1: I get the sense from, from what you've described that they were kind of, let's, let, let's let Jack go do that. He'll be out of our hair. It'll keep him busy and – Fine. won't cause anybody trouble. I think you're pretty much on the mark. This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jack Bogle. He is the founder of the Vanguard Group, the inventor of the index fund, and author of far too many books to mention. I've been speaking with Jack here in the headquarters of of Vanguard, and just outside the conference room where we're sitting— on the wall is a framed print and on that print it says, stamp out index funds. Jack, what on earth does that mean?
2: That means Wall Street couldn't make any money out of index funds. Mm-hmm. And so Wall Street didn't like it. We had an initial, initial public offering. I went all over New York so many times to try and find underwriters and finally got the four largest retail underwriters. beige Dean, Witter, Reynolds uh, – Forget who, who the other one was. Hey, Steenwinner, Reynolds. Okay. They were the biggest guys in the business, and they said, We can do $150 million with this great new idea. Mm-hmm. They did $11 million. <laughs>
1: so so less than 10%.
2: <laughs> and they came in, in to see me when the underwriting was over and said, You know, I, I, I said to them, Look, we can't even buy round lots of all 500 right. stocks. And they said, Well, why don't we just give everybody their money back and pull it? And I said, Are you kidding me? We have the world's first index fund. And it's the world's first index fund, period. You don't have to say retail, with right. a lot of institutional holdings at the beginning. It's the world's first index mutual fund. No question about that. And uh, Amazing. And so it got nowhere went nowhere fast. Eleven million dollar launch. What year was that? That was in nineteen seventy six. Right. Eleven and- million dollars
1: and Everybody laughed and nobody thought there was any future to index funds. That's exactly right. That That's just astonishing. Well, you had incredible foresight to say, and it makes sense that the four largest retail shops would want to participate in this because this is a simple, easy way for their retail client to get exposure to the market fast, easy, relatively inexpensive.
2: It should have, except mm-hmm. that when the, when the client buys this fund, it's to be held forever. Mm-hmm. They don't trade it. And the fund doesn't do any trading. There's no brokerage business generated by the fund. So this was not a happy moment for Wall Street. And uh, they looked at it, I think, as a some kind of the beginning of a, of a, a communicable disease. Right. And it had to, it had to be stamped out. Uh, the Center for Disease Control had to come in. and.
1: Did they really perceive you as a threat or did they kind of laugh it off and, yeah, yeah, best of luck with that, Jack?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd say pretty much that way, although we did a couple of years ago. For one of the funds anniversaries we all got together with the underwriters all four
1: underwriters yeah all four underwriters
2: and their lawyers and our lawyer lawyer singular we only had one on those days and uh, they're all good people you know i don't uh and we all do our best in this life in very different ways of work so it worked out well it had to start and it did start
1: so here's the question that i could ask you 40 plus years later Vanguard is now running three point something trillion dollars. Four trillion is not that far off in the distance. An enormous success, one of the single largest asset managers in the world. How come nobody ever said, "Hey, those guys are onto something. We should be a competitor to them"? How did how did that never come up anywhere along the lines? <laughs>
2: well, the answer is so simple. Index funds have a real problem. Mm-hmm. all the damn money goes to the investors. Right. Managers can't take anything. They're not managing.
1: Well, but you're taking 10 or 15 basis points, and on trillions of dollars, that's not nothing.
2: Well, nobody expected to get to trillions of dollars, believe me, not at 11 million.
1: <laughs> but, but, okay, in 74 or 76, it's 11 million, but by the time you get to the mid-1990s... You're hundreds of billions of dollars, and then I think you hit a trillion uh, – was it late 90s? So even 97, 98, 99, didn't anybody say, hey, those guys in Pennsylvania, they have a trillion dollars. Why don't we do what they're doing?
2: Well, it's a, it's a problem, and, and eventually the big guys had to. Fidelity had to have. Mm-hmm. They were drag-kicking and screaming in indexing, mm-hmm. and they have to be competitive on price. They can still make all the money they want, and it's an awful lot uh, on the actively managed funds. So it's kind of a loss leader for Fidelity.
1: And what about others, BlackRock and American Century and all these other entities? Schwab offers an index. It seems everybody offers some version of uh, the S&P 500 index.
2: Yeah, well, T. Rowe Price is a good example. They have a hidden index fund. They don't talk much about it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of expensive, 20, 25 basis points relative to R5. Uh, And it's a kind of a sideball thing so they can get into the retirement market. This has become a marketing business. And right now, we're seeing this tremendous change in people realizing the importance of low cost and a long-term focus. And if you just keep those two things in mind, you will never do anything but own a broad market index and hold it forever.
1: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Jack Bogle. He is the founder of the Vanguard Group, inventor of the index fund, author of numerous books. Let's jump right back into the issue of costs and how they impact investors. You're known as the person who created the index fund, but really, which do you think is more important? The passive indexing or the fact that it's so low cost?
2: Well, it's it's pretty clear to me that passive indexing is the more important because I'm going to define cost in a couple of different ways here. Okay. One is the expense ratio. Mm -hmm. And our funds, index funds, probably average about 10 basis points. Our managed funds probably average about 35 so there's not that big a difference. The industry is up around 120 on an unweighted basis. And and when we
1: talk about basis points, a basis point is just a percentage of... So 100 basis points is 1%, 10 basis points is one-tenth of 1%. If you're averaging 10 basis points, that's a very, very inexpensive... It's five
2: one-hundredths of 1%. Five
1: basis points, five (laughs) one-hundredths of 1%. That's very inexpensive.
2: That is really inexpensive, but that's... Because we have a mutual company owned by its shareholders and don't have to deliver profits. And think about this for a minute, Perry, that the profit margins in this business can easily run to be 50%. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a 1% expense ratio, you're making 50 basis points on the top. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're actually operating at 50, which is probably not too bad because very few people have the scale that we have developed, sure. have the technology that we've developed have the efficiencies that we've developed, and also, I don't think this is self-serving, have the bully pulpit that we have. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine Fidelity coming into this business. I describe that as drag kicking and screaming to the business. Mm -hmm. So here we have kicking and screaming over here, and here we have missionary zeal, the bully pulpit. This is the way. This is the new way. And you have an entire universe of
1: evangelists amongst the advisor community who have drunk the Kool-Aid and say, hey, low-cost indexing is the way to go. Following the financial crisis, it seems like Vanguard was sucking up all the money in the room and everybody else wasn't also also ran. Are events like the great financial crisis, does that sort of shake people out of their false belief and send them in the direction of, hey, these missionaries, it turns out these guys are right.
2: Well, you're certainly right in a sense. It's, it's not easy to read. But uh, what happens when the market goes way down, it went down fifty, roughly 50% in 2007 to 2009, and all these managers that says, we'll manage your money for you, the shareholders kind of led to expect that they will anticipate this and not let it happen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may not directly communicate that, but if someone says, Well, I'm you know, I'm I'm pretty smart, I'm a smart manager, you would expect that in the down market they would do a good bit better than the market. Well, of course, to begin with, they can't. Because some do and some don't, and they're right. all averaged together. And
1: how are you picking one over the other? You then, never know in advance, so you can only guess and what good is that?
2: Yeah, exactly. So the down markets do help that. But it's also this wave of you know, there's not an economics course, there's not an MBA course and uh, in, in investing or finance, uh, that doesn't say basically indexing is the way. It's the data that matters. Mm-hmm. It's the data. And uh, it's going to, so instead of, I mean, usually if you look back and see a fund that's done well, you can pretty much conclude it will not do well in the future. Everything reverts to the mean. Right. The index does not. It mm-hmm. continues to give you your share of the market return. And when you look at the numbers, I mean, one of my, favorite constructions is uh the index fund gives you the advantage of long-term compounding of returns Mm -hmm. while uh, eliminating uh the tyranny of long-term compounding of costs so think about it this way let's assume the stock market gives a seven percent return over your life over 30 years or over 50 years uh if you get the seven percent each dollar goes up 30 times. If you get 5%, that would be 7% less the industry's typical 2% all-in cost. Uh, You get $10. Wow. So so $10 versus $30. Huge difference. So you put up 100% of the capital. You took the 100% of the risk. And you got 33% of the return. As I say to people, if that strikes you as a good deal, by all means do it.
1: So – Morningstar once famously did a study, which I'm sure to this day they regret. And the study, they, they became you know famous for their star rankings of mutual funds. And I've written about this. You could Google this. People can find this. Someone internally did a study and said, if you don't have access to Morningstar data, but you just looked at a single data point across the universe of mutual funds, what would be the most helpful? Would it be the track record? Would it be the manager? Would it be, And it turned out that if you forgot about everything else and only picked the lowest cost funds, that generated the highest returns going forward. So how that makes me ask the question, how important are keeping costs
2: low to investors? Well, when you give the, the statement that it's only cost that matters, I'm inclined to say, as the kids would say, Barry, "Duh." <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it seems obvious after the fact, but
1: for the longest periods of time, people. So let's let me digress and talk a little bit about hedge funds. While all this money is flowing in Vanguard over the past decade since the financial crisis, you guys went from a trillion to over three trillion. The other segment of the market that attracted a ton of money was the hedge fund industry, which charges 2%, forget five basis points, 2% of the assets under management plus 20% of the profits. And they also scaled up across 10,000 funds to $3 trillion. How do you explain, despite the obvious, duh, how do you explain so much money flowing to a group with such high expenses?
2: Well, greed, Mm -hmm. the buyer's greed, and perhaps even the manager's greed because those are very high costs. Uh, but people are looking for a better way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty easy. I've done a lot of work on this. You may have read some of it. To forecast what the stock market return is going to be uh, within reasonable magnitudes over time, not not year by year, but over decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, so y- you know where you're going to be roughly in the stock market. And you say a oh, pension plan. And, uh, pension plans are a very heavy part of the, of the hedge fund business because they don't have to worry about the high taxes generated by by hedge funds and uh so they say we've got to have more and someone coast comes and shows them their past record and guess what they put the s&p 500 to shame mm-hmm. of course they wouldn't show you the record if they didn't so um, a little survivorship bias built yeah. into that sure well there's survivorship bias built into it uh but most of all there's it ignores the fact of life in this business it's everywhere reversion to the mean. Mm -hmm. Biblically put, Barry, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And it happens to hedge funds. It happens to mutual funds. It is basically a fundamental law. Seven fat years, seven lean years, (laughs) and there's no way around it. Yeah, the number of years may differ, but you've got it.
1: All right. Well, you you referenced the Bible and and that that phrase had always stayed with me. Um, So let's let's stick with the issue of... um, Of indexing uh, for now, and uh, I want to quote something that Charlie Ellis had wrote. Charlie was uh, not only on the board of uh, the Vanguard Group uh, Board of Directors, but he was also an advisor to the Yale Endowment Fund, and he wrote a a wonderful book called Winning the Losers Game, and he, he also advocates that individuals should stick with simple indexing, which leads me to a question. How many indices should the average investor own?
2: Well, very, very few is the symbol to that answer to that question. You need a broad stock index and you need a broad bond index because I'm convinced that everybody should have a little anchor to windward when these bad times come, if for no other reason to protect themselves from getting emotional and be- behaving badly and selling out their portfolios at market bottoms. So leaving aside the allocation between stocks and bonds, you can buy a bond index fund and you can buy a total stock market index fund and you can buy the Standard & Poor's 500 index fund, and that's basically 85% of the market. Uh, the, you would think that the, that the uh, total stock market would be a better bet because it's more diversified than the S&P 500, but we're in a time right now, and I don't know if this is durable or not, nobody does, uh, where the large companies are doing better than the small companies. Mm-hmm. So the great Mr. Buffett and uh, does his – he's leaving his wife's estate and 90% in the S- Vanguard S&P 500 index fund. Uh, he has a bet with a, some hedge fund managers.
1: He's winning. He's winning the bet.
2: He's not winning it. He's he's killing he's, him. He's
1: <laughs> he's absolutely way way ahead. They actually had to create derivatives for this bet. This is a real bet with millions of yeah, dollars exactly. at risk on it. And he looks. He, it's a runaway. Nobody else is even in second.
2: Well, he's got a year to go.
1: It, it. This is that's right. It'll be a decade after the financial crisis. The hedge fund. For those of you who may not be familiar with the infamous bet, a bunch of hedge fund managers were um, arrogant enough to bet Warren Buffett that they could outperform the S&P 500. He took that bet and it's not even close. It's it's really an amazing story. I didn't realize we're only a year away from the the final outcome of that uh bet and it's it's theoretically possible they can win, but really mathematically it's it's highly improbable that well, they I think be it's able to very improbable. Highly improbable. Anything
2: stuff. can happen, however, I concede that.
1: Jack Bogle, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. For those of you who are interested in hearing the conversation continue, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting. Uh, You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to the podcast. Jack, thank you so much for doing this. This has really been tremendously fascinating. It was worth the drive to Pennsylvania (laughs) to come come see you. Um, I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by everything you've accomplished. So we've talked a little bit of the advantages of indexing for equities, and you mentioned bond funds. Uh, There have been some pretty reasonable academic arguments that you could do okay with active management with bond funds, Because there's such a universe of choices, it's not just treasuries, but it's treasuries and it's corporates and it's municipalities. How do you feel about about bond funds? Do you just own a broad um, index of bond funds or do you look at uh, active management in bonds and say, well, maybe there's some value added there?
2: Well, as a group, bond managers cannot win Mm because they are the market. right? And so they will, as a group, capture the market return. There's just no question about this. And charging as they do, Probably uh, in the mutual fund business, probably 60 basis points, 70 basis points, they just don't have a fighting chance over the bond fund index. Now that index has some issues, as they say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started the first bond index fund, by the way.
1: What year was it? Thirty that? years ago. Okay.
2: Yeah, 30 years ago, and it's done just fine. Met the test of competition, but. It, I'm not. I think we can do better in bond indexing than the bond than the bond index the way it's constructed, because it's about 70 percent treasuries and mortgage backed, good mortgage backed, right, uh, government backed uh, instruments. And I think most investors should not have 70 percent in the super safe category. Mm-hmm. I think something like 30 percent is pretty good.
1: So it should be a better assortment of risk that potentially is generating more returns. And as long as you're holding it for Decades, the short-term volatility is irrelevant.
2: Yeah, well, the, the 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 one that I happen to use myself is our intermediate intermediate-term bond index fund. Mm-hmm. It has it's just as volatile or as non-volatile because it has the same duration or average maturity, and uh, but it's about thirty-five percent governments, mm-hmm. and it's the same in every other respect. So if it has a higher yield. The yield on a bond has a ninety-one percent today's yield, a ninety-one percent correlation with the return you're going to get in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. So you might as well take advantage of it. And I'd say particularly, I mean, yes, it's a little riskier, but today people are dying for income, dying for income. And to reach a little bit, I mean, I don't believe in big reaching for yield at all. Well,
1: that certainly was was a cause of problems in the last financial crisis. Everybody who reached for yields and said, I understand this is subprime, but the rating agencies tell me it's AAA, so I'm going to hold my nose and buy this. Didn't work out
2: that well. It did not work out well,
1: <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. So, so I didn't realize you had created the first bond index fund. So, we have, we have bond indexes, which you would like to see have a little more risk and uh, uh, a little less of the super safe size. We've already discussed uh, the equity side. Let, let's talk a little bit about some of the hot buzzwords that are going around today. And I'm curious as I already know what your answer is going to be, but I I feel obligated to ask. Before we
2: get to that, can I just say one thing? Sure. We also started in about 19, well, in 1987 to broaden our index base from the S&P 500. We'd started Mm -hmm. the bond index fund. We then started I realized that there was a certain attractiveness to owning the whole market. So we started something called the Extended Market Index Fund.
1: How many holdings are in that? Well, typically.
2: probably um, right now, <laughs> it varies amazingly, uh, but probably right now, 2,500. All right, because the,
1: the Wilshire 5,000 is something like 3,400 stocks. It's a, Yeah, it's even less than that. It uh, got up
2: to 7,000, believe uh, it or not, late 90s. Yeah.
1: Well, we were cranking out a lot of new companies before we realized that pets.com wasn't a sustainable business. <laughs> exactly.
2: Model. So I also had an idea that uh, growth might do better than value for, the, for, for p- young people investing on a dollar averaging basis. and wouldn't be that much riskier. And when they retired, they might want an income fund. So I, cha- I divided the S&P into two. As soon as the S&P did that, I started a growth index fund, half of the S&P, and a value index fund, the other half. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out very well. I mean, it worked out fine from a performance standpoint, but we found – is the money poured into growth when growth was doing well at the wrong time and out of growth and into value. So, you know, sometimes we may, I think we've got to be very aware of creating things that we know investors are going to use badly. So, no, we don't know we don't tell them what to use and how to use it, but it happens and it's a responsibility of us the sponsor to do that.
1: So, yeah. that raises a really significant question which is how important is investor behavior to long-term returns? And what can the average investor do to make sure that they don't shoot themselves in the
2: foot? Well, the first thing to do is don't chase performance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't, if some salesman, or you reading the paper for that matter, I don't need to blame the salesman for this, it says here's a new manager on a new fund and it's really doing great, or an old manager and the fund is doing great. And this fund has a great 20 year record. Turn away from that Mm -hmm. because its next 20 years aren't going to be anywhere near as good as its past 20. There are plenty of examples of that, with all due respect to my friends up in Boston. Fidelity's Magellan Fund was a star fund for roughly 20 years. Fantastic. And Peter
1: it, Lynch, and then his one of his successors did really well. Peter Lynch was a superstar performer, and then what happened?
2: Well, with a tiny little fund, too. Don't forget <laughs> that. And a fund that wasn't even offered to the public for five or six years. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> we all have our little secrets, and uh, so I think overrated, but Peter Lynch was certainly a good manager, but... You know, his principle of, you know, if you see a product you like, buy the stock, you know, makes no rational sense, I'm sorry to say. And uh, Peter Lynch also at Medellin, Magellan Fund's heyday said in words of one syllable in Barons, most investors would be better off in an index fund.
1: I read that. Was and, that Barron's? I know I read and, that from him and, and that's not a concession.
2: That's the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Well, you have him saying that. You have Warren Buffett saying that. We have a number of people. David Swenson. Swenson at, at, at the Yale Endowment. You know, He's another one. Um, uh, it's amazing that people push uh, against this because it's long-term and boring and there's nothing to talk about. And, but I guess shouldn't that leads to the next question. Should investing be long-term and boring?
2: If you want to have a comfortable retirement <laughs> – Believe me, you'll be less bored in your retirement if you got plenty of money. <laughs> you'll you'll be you'll be so on board if you don't do it that you'll be have to go back to work.
1: So let me ask you a, a, about some of the hot buzzwords that are out there in investing these days. And again, this is a cheat because I'm pretty sure I know what your answers are, but I I feel obligated to ask this. So your index funds are basically put together by market cap weighting, but now there's something called smart beta, which is different ways of assembling an index that don't rely on uh, cap weighting. What do you think of the idea of smart beta?
2: Smart beta is stupid.
1: <laughs> okay. And, Tell us why.
2: Well, I mean, I didn't say that's that's what um, Nobel laureate Bill Sharp says. Mm-hmm. I just quoted him. And uh, the reason is is th- th- just think about this for a minute. It's it's another form of active management to begin with. But if smart beta is good, uh and th- that means it beats the index. Mm-hmm. Then dumb beta just does even worse than the index, right? Right. So mm-hmm. smart and dumb are different. But why are people going to be dumb if it's so easy to be smart? It's just another claim that I can do this better now. Happily, uh, after Wisdom Tree and and uh, Rob Arnott's uh, fund came out a decade ago, his fund is now more than ten years old. Mm-hmm. What happened? And the answer is essentially nothing. Uh, his fund beat the SP 500 by, I think, 30 basis points, but it was 20% more volatile, mm-hmm. and therefore its sharp ratio, the rela- relationship between risk and reward, don't hold me to the numbers, but uh, the, the sharp ratio of, I mean, let me just guess here, I won't be too far off. The sharp ratio of the 500 was like 41, on the sharp ratio of, mm-hmm. of um, Arnott's fund was 36. Okay. So he lost. He had 10 years to prove it. Now, maybe he'll prove it in the next 10 years. Who can say? But why would that be? I mean, where is all the brain power? He's a very smart guy, by the way, one of the smartest guys in this business.
1: He was a guest on the show, one of our earliest guests. He's a delightful gentleman. I always enjoy his company. Um, And it was really an an insightful thought to say, let's think of different ways to put together – um, to put together indexes, but your position is this isn't after fees, after everything else. Once you now you risk adjust it, you look at all this volatility. Your your conclusion is this just isn't worth
2: it. Well, and even if you look at absolute returns, it's like 30 basis points better over 10 years. Mm-hmm. Now that's not trivial, but when he has essentially the same portfolio as the index fund with different weightings, mm-hmm. uh, you can't expect anything to be too different. So I think it's it's oversold. Uh, Jeremy Siegel of Wisdom Tree described this as the new Copernican view of the world. Everybody had it wrong. And Copernicus said, "Oh, by God, that sun is in the middle." And the new sun is Smart Beta. It mm-hmm. can't be because we're all as a group average. And if there are these smart guys over there, there are dumb guys over there. In smart and dumb both in and
1: so net net when you're buying smart data you're really buying a distribution of really smart guys really average guys really dumb guys and you don't know who's yeah. who across all the smart beta funds
2: Yeah, and then think about this one step further the, the index essentially guarantees the, the the dollar value index essentially guarantees you the return that all investors share so that's written stone mm-hmm. uh, etched in stone uh smart beta May do a little better, may do a little worse. What's the point of taking the risk when the guarantee of getting the market return is right at your hand? Why would you speculate? Why would you speculate on maybe this guy can do it better? And believe me, some of these smart beta funds will, for a short period of times, will do it, and some of them won't. I mean, that's the nature of the beast.
1: Uh, I've described it as why do you want to romance alpha and forsake beta when beta is a sure thing? Yep. Yeah. So... That's smart, Beta. Let me ask you about something else that I suspect I know to your know your answers. This year, commodities have uh, gold, especially, has had a huge bounce back. We saw a tremendous commodity run from the early two thousands till two thousand eleven. What are your thoughts on things like commodity funds, gold, and uh, energy for for investors?
2: No, no, and no.
1: No. Let's repeat this in case those of you missed. <laughs> gold no commodity funds no oil funds no tell us why
2: okay well oil is a commodity so i'm thinking of oil as a commodity now mm-hmm. and that is think about what a stock is okay a stock has an internal rate of return and it's composed of the earnings growth and the dividend yield mm-hmm. when you buy it it's there if the stock goes up and down that return is there it has an un- underlying internal rate of return you,
1: you have a discounted cash flow from the future exactly. you're buying an existing business that's going to generate revenue and profits and you get to participate in that.
2: Now take a bond. Mm -hmm. It has an internal uh, return equal to the interest coupon that you're going to get over the next 10 years or 25 years, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. Commodities have no internal rate of return.
1: And there's a cost of storage and security for things like gold
2: or oil. So when you buy a unit of gold, why do you buy it? Because you think you can sell it to somebody for a higher price. Mm-hmm. That is the definition of speculation.
1: That's the classic greater fool theory. You may have paid a lot, but someone will pay more.
2: And, well, I mean, you may be right, by the way. There's no yeah. reason you can't be right, but that just means the other guy is wrong.
1: <laughs> and you don't know, as you as the investor, you don't know which of those two parties you're going to be five years from now.
2: Yeah. And, and another thing, when you mentioned gold, this is, it brings to mind is Everybody used to talk about gold. Forbes magazine highlighted in all their reviews for years and years when they picked the best fund, gold funds, gold funds. And then we, we had the boom in gold, and then we had the collapse. Mm-hmm. And nobody started talking about, nobody talked about gold. Now we have another boom, and everybody's talking about gold. Then gold collapses last year. Nobody's talking about gold. Now gold is up this year. Everybody, this is metaphorically speaking, everybody's talking about gold. You know, don't pay any attention to gold. I mean, it would not be stupid – I wouldn't do it, but it would not be stupid to have a very small position in gold as a hedge against worldwide hyperinflation, mm-hmm. maybe 5%. I wouldn't do any more than that. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think you should do that, but it's at least defensible uh, because you're, you have a specific goal in mind. And the- It's insurance.
1: You're paying a 5% insurance on the remote possibility of global hyperinflation but if you're wrong it's a giant 5% drag on your portfolio for the next few decades.
2: Yeah, and that's huge.
1: That is well, you guys are talking about 5 basis points. This is 500 basis points. That's a tremendous tremendous drag. Let's talk a little bit and by the way, I'm pretty much what I expected you to say about commodities. Let's let me find two things to talk to you about that I'm going to have to push back a little bit. One is ETFs, exchange traded funds. I know you're not a big fan of them, but lots of investors find it's a very inexpensive, simple way to get exposure to the S&P 500 or whatever asset class they want. Why are you not a big fan of ETFs?
2: Well, I'll start with a little anecdote. Okay. A wonderful guy named Nathan Mose came to visit me in 1992, right in my office upstairs here at Vanguard. And he said, I have a great idea for you. We, I want to start the first exchange-traded mutual fund and have Vanguard as my partner. There I was. I could have not only created the first index mutual fund, but the first ETF. And I said, Nate, no way, because the description that you got from, from Nathan, or at least their first ads later on, was now you can trade the S and P 500 all day long in real time. Mm-hmm. And I would say, that's a what bad idea. What kind of a nut would want to do that? <laughs> I mean, there must be better things to do than that in this life. But in any event, it's the trading idea when my idea of indexing, broad market indexing, by the S&P 500 and hold it forever. Mm-hmm. What Warren is said to be Warren, Warren Buffett's favorite holding period. It is forever. So,
1: <laughs> so the idea of an S&P 500 funds that if you're going to do that exposure, you're better doing it with a low-cost mutual fund than an index fund uh then an, uh ETF so there is no temptation to trade intraday or to play around that that's not what you think people should be doing with their time
2: oh well, not but let's let's examine the ETF business for just a minute and that is if you look at ETFs mm-hmm. all the big ones I man I can't look at all of them but the big ones particularly and the normal ones uh are about 70% owned by financial institutions they're trading them in the marketplace every right. day the spider the S&P 500 uh uh, ETF. Well, the
1: NASDAQ 100, the QQQ. Well, the, the spider
2: is the most widely traded stock in the world mm-hmm. every day. And if you look further this year, which is a little more volatile than most years so far, the vo- dollar volume of trading in ETFs is the mm-hmm. same size as the dollar volume of trading in common stocks. Wow. Unbelievable, because common stocks are worth about $23 trillion, mm-hmm. and the, sp- the spiders are worth about two. So spiders are turning over at 3,000% a year, and stocks are turning over at 200% a year, something like that. So they're trading instruments owned by large institutions. I mean, look at the spider ad. It says, institutions, here's what you need to trade. I mean, it's practically verbatim from the ad. It, just, it may be irrelevant, but I, I don't think in the long run. And that has anything to do with a mutual fund business or individual and investment.
1: And it certainly shouldn't have anything to do with individuals because why would you as an individual want to trade against these giant institutions who do nothing but use this as a either a trading tool or a hedging tool or whatever it is? You're saying this is not a playground for individuals to, to step into.
2: And that looks like it's roughly 70% of the business. And you know, I don't even need to criticize it. It's kind of irrelevant. When you get to the other... Thirty percent of the business, and I may be a little off in my percentages here, but they're individuals, mm-hmm. and you know something like two thirds of them are using ETFs to trade, and one third of them, that would be ten percent of the total, all well, the ETF market, are using them, buying and holding them, and maybe using them. You know, we have it's a funny technical thing in this business, but you know if you want to put in a thousand dollars a month into a Vanguard fund and then you want to take out $5,000 at the end of the year uh, to buy Christmas presents, whatever you might want. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very difficult to do that here because we don't like buying and selling at the same time. Right. You can do it with our ETFs very easily. So there's a certain marketplace there of people who aren't traders but like the flexibility that ETFs have, and I have no problem with that. The other, the other part of the problem, however, the ETF problem, is there is this huge amount in number, not so much in assets, of funds that are doing things that no intelligent investor would ever do. Mm-hmm. Triple leverage, and you can bet every day whether the market's going up or down.
1: Isn't that grand? Not only triple leveraged up, but inverse triple leveraged as sure, well. Sure.
2: As long as you know whether the market's going up or down during the day, you're going to make a fortune.
1: Who who knows if the market's going to go up any or down any given day? Well,
2: I guess these smart people have these funds, but they all have both of them. <laughs> That's they right. They don't compete with each other, and there are a whole lot of other wacky things. I mean, I don't think U.S. investors. You'll, I'm sure you're going to come to this. Should be buying individual foreign, non-U.S. Uh,
1: so let's let's ask that question. Uh, a lot of the academic data says that if you're diversified internationally, parts of the world are sometimes doing better than the U.S., and sometimes the U.S. is doing part of the world. If we want to really be diversified. You need U.S. and not just have an overwhelming home country bias, uh, developed world, ex U.S., and then emerging markets. What's wrong with having a smattering of those in your portfolio so that you get to take advantage of the growth of uh, the Pacific Rim and China and South America and et cetera?
2: Well, the question is is it an advantage? I mean, tell someone to put all their money in Brazil two years ago. Okay. Tell somebody who put in the, all their money in China a year ago, is it an advantage or is it just you know kind of a little bubble going on in those countries? Well,
1: but you're not picking individual countries. You're going to have a broad index of international companies and therefore it should theoretically – the gains should offset the losses and then some and so you have exposure elsewhere. You're not a big fan of that.
2: Well, I'm not and, and the reason goes back to when I started to think about it seriously writing my book, uh, Bogle on Mutual Funds, back in Mm -hmm. 1993-94. Bogle
1: on Mutual Funds. Let's see what I have here. I have Common Sense on Mutual Funds. That
2: probably says something very similar to this, Mm -hmm. but this is a little more recent. So I said 10th did,
1: edition forward by David Swenson so when you say recent this came originally came out in, almost 15 years ago right it,
2: the original was uh, 1999 okay 17 years ago interestingly enough I'll get back to the other subject in a second but interestingly enough the first book came out at a market high and the second 1999 and the second book came out at a market low and I would hardly change one word in the whole second edition Really. I reprinted it verbatim, Mm -hmm. and then Mark put red, Nantucket red, for any changes that took place in the book. Now, on the the tenth edition,
1: that's that's used after the financial crisis. You could see some of the changes that were made, but they're really very modest. You really didn't change any of the themes in this.
2: You just kind of fleshed it out post crisis. It worked. Indexing worked in the good market. Indexing worked in the not so good market, Uh, and cost low cost worked in the good market. And, not so good, and also in the not-so-good market. It has to. So uh, getting back to I said in, in my first book, uh, look, U.S. companies get half of their revenues. This is true now at least, a little bit less than Half of their revenues and half of their earnings from outside the U.S. We, you have an international portfolio. Why do you want a larger one? And then I say, take a look at what com- comprises that international portfolio. Your largest investment is Japan. Your second largest investment is the U.K. Your third largest investment is France. Now, if returns are developed out of national economic strength, does anybody think that the U.K. and Japan and France are going to do better than the U.S. in the next 10, 15, 20 years? I can't imagine it. And now I may be wrong. I'm not saying this is written in stone, but uh, that's that's 45% of the money. So if people knew they were putting 45% of their international money, so-called international, non-US, is a better formulation. In Great Britain, France, and, and Japan, uh, I mean, every one of those economies has real problems. The French don't work very hard. <laughs> the Japanese have a structured and deeply aging economy overburdened by future retirement claims.
1: Right. Terrible demographics, and they're a great exporter, but they they have issues.
2: And Britain doesn't know what's going to happen if they do the the exit from the Mm -hmm. European community, and nor do they know what's going to happen if they stay in.
1: So what would happen if a sharp upstart company, let's call them Vanguard, says, here's a broad international index that's fairly evenly weighted. It's not just these three countries. Might that change your perspective, or do you still think hey, you get plenty of the S&P 500, half the revenue comes from overseas. That's all the
2: overseas uh, exposure
1: anyone really needs.
2: Uh, I I don't like the idea mm-hmm. because you would have as much in, I don't know, Honduras right. <laughs> as you do in, in Great Britain. It wouldn't make any sense. right. Uh, so, But to make matters worse, when I made this statement in 1995, we now have 22 years of history. Right. How was the prediction? And the answer is that Don't hold me to the exact numbers, but uh, the U.S. portfolio is up about, say, 750 Mm percent, and the non-U.S. portfolio is up about 275.
1: So the U.S. is still winning versus uh, the international.
2: So I committed the ultimate sin, Barry. I was right. (laughs) Now, Um, I want to be very clear on this. Does that mean I will be equally right in the future? I can't imagine it.
1: You think eventually mean reversion comes in, and eventually those two positions will reverse the U.S. Well,
2: I don't think they will reverse, uh, but I don't think that spread is a a durable spread. And and the reason I don't think they'll reverse is we have this fabulous economy here. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, it has problems, but probably less problems than any country in the world.
1: No doubt about that. My favorite quote is, this is the cleanest shirt in a dirty hamper.
2: Sure, exactly right. And, well, I mean, I'd say it was even cleaner than that. We're, we're number one in innovation and technology. Uh, we're no, n- number one in entrepreneurship. Uh, we're still a great manufacturing company, although not as great as we were. And we still have, you know, all these new companies being started, existing companies being run more and more efficiently, and more than anything else, or at least as much as all that, we have great institutional structure in this country. We have legal protections. We have courts. We have laws. Uh, no one's going to take your stock away from you, confiscate it overnight. And uh, shareholder rights are as good as any country in the world, maybe with the exception of, I don't think they do any better, but they don't do any worse. Probably Switzerland and Great Britain would be the, the two big competitors. You been,
1: see you see what happens in China. Your stocks may not be your stocks. It's no. very hard to be, forget as a, as a local, as an international investor, it's very hard to be an investor in China if you don't know, Am I going to be able to ever cash this out, or maybe there is going to be a vacation period where no sales for the next month, as we saw uh, last year?
2: Yeah, and, and let me add to this that uh, these you know, just about everybody says I am wrong. By the way, mm-hmm. but everybody said I was wrong about index. I was going to say that's
1: only going to make you <laughs> that's only going to make you double down and think you are right because there is a track record of people predicting you are going to be wrong, and
2: they've all uh, they've
1: all proven themselves false.
2: So, but let me just say one more thing in international. Just think what would you would have done if you had an internationally weighted or a non-U.S. weighted in 1989 mm-hmm. when you had 50%, that is to say 50% of your money in Japan.
1: Right, when the Nikkei was 46000 or so. Yeah,
2: something like that. No one was talking this way then, uh, but that could happen again, and I don't think you should be subject to these funny speculative booms that can take place in other mm-hmm. countries. I just can't imagine that there will be a significant advantage in international companies over U.S. companies. I'm not talking about stocks now. I'm talking about companies and economies uh, over the U.S. Now, look, I could be wrong on this. And if you think I'm wrong, go buy all the international, all the non-U.S. stocks you want. Buy a non-U.S. stock index. Buy individual countries. I wouldn't do any of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we didn't even mention, the currency side of things how how significant is currency fluctuations to uh to this sort of international exposure if you're domiciled here in the u.s
2: what what kind of currency currency currency, currency sure uh well that that is an issue because the dollar has been very strong and uh it won't be strong forever because international trade has a way of balancing out when the dollar is strong the trade balances change and all that so I don't think you should count on a good, a strong dollar forever. So won't won't won't
1: impact it. Let let's talk. Um, but I want to talk a little more about Vanguard, but before we get to that, two two qu- last questions about indexing. The first is: Is there any sort of active management you would favor? You know, Vanguard about thirty percent of the assets here are in active managed funds. What do you think about having a small slug of someone's portfolio in something that? might not be a passive index
2: well let me give you this very important background about our actively managed funds and this is what i've been saying since we started vanguard in 1974 i want our active management actively managed funds to have returns that are relatively predictable relative predictability relative to their group their their group like large cap value funds or mm-hmm. long-term municipal bond funds whatever it might be um uh, and uh the idea would be look at those funds and not don't get too far out of line. So you'll have an average performance. If you, if you have six managers, there's where the multi-manager thing comes from. Mm-hmm. If you have six managers, the idea that they will do about the same as, another, as your competitive group with 60 managers is almost guaranteed to do the same. So what's so good about that? What's so good about that is we think we have a 1.5% to 2% cost advantage through lower expenses, lower turnover, no sales loads, and we should win by a point and a half a year, not on brilliance, but on cost. So let That's me, guaranteed. Now, let me just give you the punchline here. Mm-hmm. If you win what's so good about 1.5% over 10 years, you have a 20% higher return. That That's tremendous. So
1: I previously
2: interviewed
1: your CEO and chairman, Bill McNabb, and one of the comments he had made is that he still felt there was room to squeeze costs lower. You guys are three and a half trillion dollars. Is there a floor on how low costs can go or are you eventually going to run out of efficiencies?
2: Well, we have yet to squeeze costs lower Mm -hmm. because our costs go up and up and up.
1: But as a percentage, you can squeeze them a little lower on a per dollar invested basis. uh, I
2: certainly don't want to disagree with our CEO, but it's not we're squeezing, mm-hmm. but we're the captive of the market. Mm-hmm. If the market goes way down, our expense ratio is going to go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way we could squeeze enough out of our expenses if we had 15% less assets. Mm-hmm. So we should be very careful about expenses, and we are. I think we're managed uh, in a very strong way. But uh, we're, the, the expense ratio is a combination of something we can control more or less, mm-hmm. how much we spend. That's something we can't control at all, the level of the stock market. Mm -hmm. So the expense ratio is a mystery, whether it goes up or down. Now, if it goes way down, it's going to mean we have very good markets. Mm -hmm. That sounds great.
1: Can indexing ever get too big, or can indexing ever take over the market, as some people have alluded? Or is there a place for a combination of indexing and active managers in the actual uh, marketplace?
2: Well, it's not in the nature of things that indexing could be 100% of the market. Mm -hmm. If it were, we would have chaos. There would be no valuations. There would be no liquidity. There would be no anything. So what are the chances that indexing get to 100%? Zero. Right now, it's, uh, I think, around 28% of the total market, 35% of the mutual fund industry, of the equity mutual fund industry. And uh, so it means that that hunk of business is in broadly stated, just removed from the turnover level. So, if the turnover were 100 percent, and the end market were 50 percent indexed, the turnover would go to 50 percent. Uh, I came into this business when turnover was 25 percent,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: everything was fine. Uh, it's going to take a long time to get to 50 percent—a long, long time—and maybe never gets there. So, when you put reality in the face of the theory that if everybody indexes, uh, then then it's going to be. Uh, it just is just not going to happen. But the other thing is, people follow this statement by saying, "If the market gets more and more indexed, then it will be less efficient, and we'll be able to beat it more easily." <laughs> no, unequivocally no. Some will beat it, some will lose to it. If they, if the market is is less efficient, and the and the winners and the losers will average the market return. There's no way around that.
1: So that leads me to a quote of yours, and I I have to ask you about it because I find it's fascinating. You once wrote the stock market is a giant distraction to the business of investing. Explain.
2: Well, investing is about the long term. And investing is about earning what I call the investment return, which is the dividend yield when you go into the stock market and the earnings growth that follows. That's investment return the market return is also has a speculative return. And that is, is the price earnings multiple of the valuations higher low when you come in. And if they're high, they're going to detract from that return. And if valuations are low and they're going to add to that return because the low will, the, the, in, in the, the valuations, the price earnings multiple reverts to the mean perfectly. It's mm-hmm. about what it, it today. Uh, although it's a, it's a little bit higher than this today because the market's a little bit, is hardly inexpensive, but, uh, the reality is it's just about the same level as it was in 1900 so we had ups and downs booms busts and in the long run speculative return is zero so concentrate on the investment return forget the inve- the speculative return which is very difficult to predict and just get what business can give you now if you look every day you're apt to do something and one of my basic rules is uh, don't do something just stand there Mhm. And if you had been doing that this year, I think you're a lot better off. This is a tough year so far. Not that bad. I mean, you think the S&P is off about 3.5%. It's really nothing. Uh, And uh, although you'd think it was the end of the world. uh, So it's don't let the stock market moves distract you. They are a tale told by an idiot. These moves, daily moves, hourly, minute-by-minute moves, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing.
1: I have a bunch of questions that I ask all of my guests, but they're all specific to each individual because they're so, um, so, so detailed. So who are your early mentors? I know in one of your books, you mentioned somebody, uh, you thanked somebody who you had mentioned in, uh, the earlier part of, of the conversation. Uh, who do you think of as, as mentors?
2: Well, outside of my teachers, my first real grown-up mentor was a guy named Jim Harrington. Mm -hmm. He was a graduate student and engineer at Princeton University, and he was running the Athletic Association ticket office. And uh, when he stopped doing that, he pulled me out of the crowd and asked me to run it for him. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to do a job, and I learned how to do it with integrity, and I learned how to do it on time. I learned how to do it It with keeping my emotions out of it. This is just
1: selling tickets to
2: Princeton students for sports. Football, basketball, baseball, whatever Mm -hmm. it might be, particularly football.
1: And that was a seminal experience to you uh, and helped form.
2: Your your own character. He had just a great sense of business values, and like all engineers, he was you know they kind of go step by step. Right. Sometimes it's not all that exciting, but it's always right. Structured, <laughs> just, organized, and and you're dealing with a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, sure, well, Princeton Stadium is how many people? That's a uh,
2: well, that was the old Palmer Stadium that held fifty thousand people.
1: Right, and now it's I almost double that size. It's it's huge, isn't it? No,
2: we went way down. We're about twenty eight thousand. Oh, you went now. the
1: other direction, okay?
2: And we can't fill it now. We used to we every every game I worked was a sellout.
1: Right, that was back in the day. So that was really a, quite an education. Um, you dedicated common sense on mutual funds to Walter Morgan. Uh, who was he in your in your pantheon?
2: Well, he was the greatest of my mentors. He hired me. Uh, he read my se- thesis out of Princeton. He wrote, I think, a little bit over the top that uh, Mr. Bogle knew more than he did, about the, than we did, about the mutual fund industry. Really? And so he liked it. And he was a Princetonian himself, class of 1920, and I was the class of 1951. And uh, I watched him work. He was very much a Renaissance man, interested in investing, interested in marketing, probably less interested in the detail of the business shareholder, record keeping and stuff, which was so much simpler those days. Mm-hmm. But also a renaissance man in terms of his interest. He was an outdoorsman, a hunter, uh, a fisherman, uh, things that I, that I don't do at all. And, uh, but he had a high sense of standards. And he, as I said at the beginning, and, uh, turned the company over to me when I was 35 years old. So he must have had an awful lot of confidence in me and i saved wellington fund finally for him after this catastrophe i described mm-hmm. earlier we told wellington management company how we wanted to run and they've been running it that way ever since it meant much more focus on income and and income stocks and less focus on growth stocks and it's worked out we had a whole renaissance of the wellington fund and he saw a lot of that and he was he he, he died but the, the year that book came out and a little bit before but i had shown him the title page with his name on it, he was very pleased and very pleased with the revival and renaissance of his wonderful Wellington Fund. I, th- I felt I had a moral obligation to hmm. save
1: it. So, what about other investors? Who hasn't influenced your thought process, your philosophy, perhaps not your approach to investing, but what other investors have colored your uh, worldview?
2: Well, you certainly start with Benjamin Graham, mm-hmm. uh, he's the basically ground zero. And uh, The Intelligent Investor, his book, I, I happen to like the fourth edition, which is much more into, into the, uh, I think it was 1974, mm-hmm. uh, has much more about mutual funds and things of that nature. And he very clear on that. And uh, so he would certainly be one. Um, Mr. Morgan, um, Mr. Morgan had a couple of associates, Joe Welsh, the president of the company, and Andy Young, his lawyer, very quick, quick-witted, smart guy, And they all saw something in me, don't know what it was, uh, that gave them confidence that I had the judgment to do the job. And another, interestingly enough, another one of my great mentors was the man who, when I came on the Investment Company Institute Board of Governors, he was the chairman. His name was D. George Sullivan. Mm -hmm. And he was executive vice president of Fidelity. Oh, really? And we had a great relationship.
1: That's fascinating. And
2: uh, so he would have been, you know, if people have confidence in you, they bring out your best. Mm-hmm. And he really did, and Mr. Morgan did, and Mr. Welsh did, and Andy Young did. Uh, so th- th- those would be the, the big names, I think.
1: Both as mentors and investors. Let, let's let talk about books. You've written your fair share of books. Who's, what other authors' books, be it on investing or what have you, uh, have you enjoyed? What, what books would you recommend to people?
2: Well, I've already mentioned... The, intelligent uh, Investor by Graham. Yeah, Intelligent Investor by Graham. I think Bert Malkiel, who's a friend of ours and friend of mine and former former director here for many, many years now, no, really the best director we've ever had, outside director. Uh, his random walk down Wall Street, which sure. is updated every couple of years, is another. Um, David Swenson's book on for the individual investor is really superb. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Bernstein's Against the Gods. I just
1: I just read that over the holidays yeah. fantastic book
2: yeah. well he was a very gifted man we were very close Peter and I uh-huh and we had our little disagreements here and there but overall we were on the same team and then Bill Bernstein four pillars of investment wisdom is a is a, is a wonderful book and uh, there aren't it's hard for me to go a lot a lot beyond that to be honest mm-hmm.
1: with you well that that's a great starting list right there you you could certainly do worse than any of those half dozen books. Um, we've talked a lot about how you've changed the industry since you began way back in, in the 60s and 70s. How else has the industry changed that you think is either for the better or for the worse? What what stands out uh, as to how finance has evolved over those those
2: years? I think when I came into this industry in 1951, it was a much better industry than it was thereafter. Mm-hmm. I, the big part of that uh, change was in the go-go era. When we had this idea. We went from investment committees, prudent investment committees, mm-hmm. buying blue-chip stocks to portfolio managers, comets, uh, and not stars, Right uh, comets that um, burn out and their ashes drift gently down to Earth. And that's happened to so many, <laughs> so many comet managers. I mean, you, you could hardly lose count. You wonder... The real, the the real superstars, just don't stay there. Mm -hmm. You know, I always used to wish Bill Miller well. He beat, he's at Leg Mason. He beat the market, I think, 16 years in a row. Right. And every time I saw him, I'd say, "Good luck, good luck in the future." I liked him. My wishes of good luck didn't do any good at all.
1: (laughs) He very famously imploded, and went from the literally the top performing fund to the bottom one percent following. The financial crisis what had worked for him previously just eventually stopped working and he got caught in a lot of paper that turned out to be not worth what he thought it was well
2: in an earlier area you remember gerald sai who ran fidelity capital fund mm-hmm. and he had the best record in the business he goes out and starts his own fund a manhattan fund gets a huge underwriting it was 400 million dollars nobody's ever seen anything like that in this business that's the old days and it had, after 10 years of operation, the worst record in the mutual fund industry. And, you know, I, I tell people, when you think about the nature of securities markets, it's just as difficult to be last as it is to be first.
1: <laughs>
2: what was his think name about again? That.
1: that. That's amazing. What
2: was his name again? Gerald Tsai, TSAI.
1: TSAI, great. Um, so some of my, my last few questions... You've mentioned a lot of things have changed since 1951. What do you see as changing in the future?
2: I guess I'd say, not to beat the phrase to death, reversion to the mean. I see the industry going back to its roots, uh, much more of a fiduciary focus. I hope so. And I'm very much in favor of the fiduciary rule, although someone else is going to have to work out the details that seem to make it difficult to operate. And. Uh, It it shouldn't make it difficult to operate because all you have to do is ask
1: yourself as an advisor one question. Hey, is this in the client's best interest? And if the answer is no, you can't do it. It's much simpler than the complicated suitability rules, which have all sorts of ifs and thens and clauses.
2: Best interest of the client, yes, you can do it. No, you can't. What could be what could be easier? Well, you unfortunately need kind of documentation how you're doing things and all that. And it is a little laborious mm-hmm. because we have to have you know a lot of lawyers work on this, and uh, you and I have the spirit of fiduciary duty, and they've got to get to the letter of it. And mm-hmm. it's it's more complex than it ought to be, but it's coming, and you know with so many funds being flashes in the pan, investors are going to learn by their own experience. You know, I was told this was a great fund. And it was a great fund for two days, and that was the end of it. Uh, and we overestimate our own ability to pick funds and stocks. We over- overestimate the ability of our managers to do better consistently. And if people just got the idea of reversion to the mean again and again and again. You know, the we were looking at some data the other day, Barry, and uh, if you're in the top quartile uh, for a given five-year period, uh, only 15% of you are going to be in the top quartile in the next five-year period, and if you're in the bottom quartile, 15% of you will be in the top quartile in the next period.
1: (laughs) And over time, that sort of returns don't help anybody. I think it was Howard Marks who said if you're consistently in the top 40% over time, that puts you in the top 10%, but you have to be consistent. You can't be a shooting star Mm -hmm. Outperforming, underperforming, outperforming, underperforming. You have to be uh, top 40. But he runs a, a, a distressed bond fund, not not necessarily a, a stock picking and, fund. And let,
2: let me add this, if I may. What is the objective of the individual investor? It's to have a lifetime of investing, investing for a lifetime. And for a young investor, believe it or not, a 25-year-old investor has a 70-year life expectancy. 70 years, they're going to be 95. They'll probably be 100 so what's the best way to invest for 70 years? If a mutual fund manager lasts for seven years, that's the average. You're going to have 10 of them. Wow. The average fund goes out of business 10% every, um, every decade, 50% every decade, excuse me.
1: Really? It's that high? That's amazing. Yeah.
2: And then the new, the new guy comes in and sweeps clean. Right. Managers get fired. There is no way, none, zero, that if you own three or four mutual funds, which is typical, There is no way that over 70 years you have even a fighting chance to beat the market and if you do the index fund i guarantee you that you will have the same non-manager 70 years from now (laughs) as the non-manager you have today
1: so that raises a really interesting question which happens to be coincidentally one of my last two questions what advice would you give to a millennial or a kid just graduating college today uh, beginning their career, what would you tell them about what they should do with their career, and what would you tell them about investing?
2: Well, people have to find their own way in this life, and I've, I've talked to a, a number of groups at Princeton, uh, one on religion and business, and one on ethics and business, two separate groups, and one is a small seminar and one is a large lecture course, and I get that kind of lecture. Should I not go into the financial business? And I say, no, go into the financial business and make it better than it is today. You know, I, uh, people have to find their own way in this life. I had to find my own way. Barry, you had to find your own way. There's a lot of bumps along the way. you got to have a little resilience. Mm-hmm. you got to be able to take defeat and turn it into victory. I think that's what I've done, maybe a little bit. And uh, <laughs> To say the least. And uh, so it's, this, this field is going to shrink hugely. There's no question about that.
1: It already has just since '09. no the, doubt about it.
2: The combination of technology and the knowledge and the spread of this disease called indexing mm-hmm. is not going to go away. It's habit-forming. It's catching. <laughs> it's and contagious. It's
1: spreading. And, and my final question, and I'm, I'm, I feel awful that it, our 90 minutes is already up. I'd like to continue going for another 90 minutes what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew when you started in 1951?
2: Well, I'd say quite a bit. I mean, I, I was on the Wellington Fund Investment Committee, and I saw how what hard it was to beat the market. I wouldn't have told you that back in 1951. And I worked for a long time with John Neff, who had many, many years oh, sure. of success mm-hmm. in beating the market. But he's an exception, and even his record in the later years deteriorated. But in any event, he isn't gonna, he's not running Windsor Fund. He ran it for 30 years, I think, but he's not, gonna, he's not running it anymore. So managers come and go. So I'd say things like the power of compounding, the beauty of keeping costs low, uh, the uh, need to, to ignore the market, uh, the need to do something are all things that have – and the difficulty. This is a very, very hard business, this business of investment management. And in, in the long run, we're all average. We're below average, as my thesis suggested, below the market <laughs> averages. And so don't think it's easy. Don't think you're smarter than anybody else. Just get in the middle, get costs out, and don't peak. John
1: Bogle, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, again, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. If you enjoy this conversation, you can look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes and see the other 80 or so of these that we've had. Uh, Be sure and check out uh, all the rest of our, our chats. They're really quite fascinating. I have to thank Mike Batnick, my head of research, for helping to put together all these questions. My producer and engineer, Charlie Vollmer, for Dragging himself out of bed at an ungodly hour in the morning to drive here uh, to Malvern, Pennsylvania to Vanguard uh, Mothership. Jack, thank you again so much. This has been absolutely fascinating.
2: Great to be with you, Barry. Good luck.